You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Impact Partners. Discover how you can join us in a spirit-led movement to bring about human flourishing grounded in love, generosity, and belonging by visiting ignitingimagination.org. Hello, and welcome back to Igniting Imagination. I'm your host, Lisa Greenwood, and joining me is my good friend and co-host for this season, Shannon Hopkins. Hey, Shannon. Hi, Lisa. It's great to be back with you. So this season's theme is facing reality, claiming leadership. And so each conversation has that arc, if you will. We ask the guests to help paint a picture of reality from their perspective, and it is from their perspective. None of us has the full picture of reality, if you will. And and that's why these conversations are so interesting and important, I think, we have invited people from various backgrounds and fields to share their point of view on reality as they see it in this moment and how that point of view is shaping what leadership they believe is needed in this time. So think of this whole season as a a paint by numbers by community, if you will, right? Each guest is filling in a few parts here and there. And we hope that when we step back and look at it as a whole, we will see a beautiful mosaic that helps us all to have more clarity about the world and the church today and what faithful leadership looks like for each of us. Our guest today, Dr. Andy Root, is the Carrie Olson Balson Professor of Youth and Family Ministry at Luther Seminary in St. Paul. Andy has perhaps a different take on the realities of the church today, and by his own admission, is a bit of a contrarian, and I mean that in the best of ways. He will raise questions and invite ideas that are meant to ignite conversation. If this ignites your ideas, your feelings, we want to hear from you. Please keep connecting with us. Send us an email. We love hearing from you and how you are processing these episodes. You can find Andy's bio in our show notes and find all kinds of resources on his website, andrewroot.org. So Shannon, what stood out to you from our conversation with Andy? Oh my gosh, so many things. It was so dynamic. I think the thing, one of the things that really struck me is how much he just values the role of pastors and pastoral ministry. And he doesn't want that to get lost. He really wants to lift up the role of the pastor. And yeah, I think that really struck me. It's so helpful to hear the conversation and to read his work, knowing that that's foundational for him. Mm, That's a big driver for him, right? With that lens, you hear his words in new ways. Totally new ways. And and yeah. it was new for me. I think um, the other thing is he, he does get, you kind of hear him as the anti-innovation guy, but actually it's because mm-hmm. he wants us to not be driven by Silicon Valley. Yeah. You know? he, and to chase something, he wants us to go back into the work of the cross. And, you know, he leads us, he reminds us that, you know, the first command was to go and wait. Right. Yeah, yeah, and that waiting, that that listening, that discerning posture is the birthplace if you will of innovation or creativity or, you know, igniting our imagination and that sort of thing. It's grounded in our Christian identity and in the call of God, not in a kind of, you know, Silicon Valley culture mindset, right? Yeah. Yeah, it, it reminds me of Kendra Creasy Dean's notion of we innovate for love. That's the reason yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let's listen to our conversation with Dr. Andy Root. 
Hi, Andy. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, and we're going to jump right in. So um, in your book, When Church Stops Working, right in the preface, you have this great teaser. So here's what you say, and I'm going to quote, you probably picked up this book because you're concerned about the church and its decline. The good news is that you're in the right place. The book will discuss why the church is in crisis, offering some suggestions for what we can do about it. The bad, or at least disorienting news, is this book will reveal what you think is the problem isn't really the problem, and the actions you think will help the church may make things worse. All right, so let's start with, tell us what the problem we think is the problem, but isn't really the problem. Yeah, th- that feels like just such a positive upbeat, you know. Like, <laughs> Way to uh, start. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very, I'm not a good, I'm not a good marketer at all, you know. Um, so people put the book down after that. I think that was maybe wise, but uh, yeah, I mean, I do think that this is a really interesting thing about being a, a kind of late modern person, if we can be so bold to say that. Is that often the the, the ways we think we have to be to be successful or to sustain ourselves may actually undercut us in, in a pretty significant way. And I think Protestantism broadly, whether evangelical or mainline, ha- has that issue. And that we do see that, I think pretty, well, I, I think we all kind of agree, what a, whatever community we're in, that the issue is, is an issue of decline, that it's declension, it's a, a loss of resources, it's a loss of cultural relevance, and that uh, our future is uh, going to be bleak if we don't find a way to to grow those realities. I, I think that tends to be how we feel. Um, and yet I think that is a kind of red herring. I don't think that's really the crisis we face. I mean, it's clearly a crisis. I mean, huge percentages of churches are one roof leak away from closing. And it's at least it, a reality, if not a it's crisis. It's an absolute like, yes. reality. Yeah. So I don't, yeah. don't want to be like, you know, uh, Pollyanna Andy and be like, oh, everything's fine, you know, and it's, you know, uh, or like over become, I don't think anybody would call you Pollyanna this. Andy. I'm just, no, saying. no one would. Be, <laughs> they would call me like the, the emo, the emo rocker of theology, <laughs> the sad kid in the corner talking about death and darkness. Um, so, I, but I do, I do want to, you know, not like intellectualize the problem and be like, oh, you know, it's not a big deal or, but I also do think that the larger issue of what it means to live in our time is that the crisis we face is one of imagination, and it isn't one of resource. And it's, an, it's a crisis of how people imagine themselves, or if they can't even can imagine themselves, standing before living in relation to a living God. Like, to me, that seems to be the real crisis. And one of the, the, the dynamics of being Protestant is to kind of always feel like you're living under a crisis. You know, it's just, we are kind of crisis people, you know? Um, but I do think that something has happened in the late 20th century into the first three decades of the 21st century where the crisis really becomes a fundamentally material one of the loss of resources, the loss of relevance. Mm-hmm. And my hunch, my my bet is that the loss is more an imagined one of how of how we live before a living God, how we help a congregation of people recognize they live before a living God, how they hear again um, the word of the living God. That to me, that it, sometimes I say it to folks like that should wake up pastors in the middle of the night. Like, how do I preach to these people? How do I help these people think about their family life in relation to a living God? Like that should keep you up at night. But I think so often what keeps pastors up at night is like 
I'm 10 years into this and I feel like I, uh, no one cares what I do. I, I'm not very, I'm not a very relevant person or our church budget is, uh, you know, is in decline or not enough people are coming. Those are usually the things that keep them up. And, right. um, and in, in an odd way, the more that those, that, that kind of false crisis becomes what shapes our identities and, and shapes our actions, the more I think we perpetuate um, the real crisis. In other words, we kind of, to use kind of philosophical words, it's, it's, we become more focused on imminent material realities than on God's action and God's being. And so you then start to shape the church even over and against your desires in a, in a certain sense towards a kind of small business, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of it, it, those, those perspectives kind of set the terms for everything. And it, it makes, uh, a big fancy where we use around my grants and things like the imminent frame seem more closed, like our lives framed around imminence in the material. The church just becomes another institution perpetuating those imminent things. And the kind of echoes, the kind of reaching for the transcendent becomes further muted. Wow. So this is, I mean, you're getting exactly at our questions about this phrase that you say, or this opening paragraph, these words um, about how then we do the very things that make it worse. And and mm-hmm. so when our frame, our, our mindset is around our resources rather than imagination and listening to the Holy Spirit and what God is leading and asking of us, when it is about those resources and we swirl about those resources, then we actually perpetuate the issue. And even uh, there's almost a, a create is not the right word because the reality exists, but we add to, mm-hmm. we you make it worse as you yeah. say. <laughs> yeah. 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 Absolutely. I think that's right. As we keep painting this picture of reality, you've got a YouTube video and we'll link to it in our show notes, all about the accelerating age. And I know you're yeah. doing a lot of work on the accelerating age. Can you talk more about that and what it means for the church yeah so it's um you know i i, I think I, you know people would not accuse me of being pollyanna andy they'd also they could accuse me of being a little uh i don't know like what do you call someone who's like into german thought you know like you call someone who like <laughs> likes french culture or a francophone or uh-huh. you know like you could you could accuse shannon of being like an Anglophone, you know, as she moves to the UK <laughs> and lives on the Thames and, you know, walks the street Dream. smoking her pipe, you know, like it, that, that, that's it. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know what there, there's gotta be a word for, uh, but so the, the accelerated, all to say the accelerating age goes back to this German social theorist. And I do have a little bit of a, a thing for German social theorists and theologians, but this man by the name of Hartmut Rosa, who's a, a, a philosopher, um, uh, cultural theorist there, he makes a really compelling argument that what it really means to live in a modern society is to have all of our, really all the dynamics of our life continue to be pushed towards speeding up, that things just mm-hmm. keep going faster and faster. And he really does, you know, he, we all kind of can say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember when I was in high school and I didn't have a cell phone, or I think about how my kids are, are you know, living with streaming services mm-hmm. and things like that. And and that's really true that there's been a kind of technological acceleration um, in, in many ways, especially as it comes to entertainment and information technology. But he also wants to say it's just around like the social norms of our lives seem to be speeding up. And, hmm. you know, since the 
2016 election, I think a lot of pastors have had to deal with trying to lead in churches where people are at different kind of accelerated modes of how one talks and embodies certain kind of moral perspectives, you know? So uh, there's this, a, a certain sense of, of even that's changing. I often I'll, I'll always reference the office and how when Steve Carell was asked if he was going to be part of a reboot of the office, he said he wouldn't be. And then he, what he, the reason he justified that he wouldn't be, I think it's because he was a big movie star and he didn't like, you know, need to go back <laughs> to a sitcom. But I, he said that he wouldn't do it because he didn't feel like Michael Scott jokes were appropriate anymore. And that's really fascinating, like huh. that the moral codes had accelerated beyond when The Office was putting on new episodes. And I would, I mean, anyone listening, I would, you know, I, I would make a bet with you, watch two or three episodes of The Office. And first of all, I'll bet you you'll laugh because it's just absolutely hilarious. But I bet you will laugh and at some point you will feel bad and go, my gosh, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think you can say that anymore. And, and you really can't. Like a lot of those jokes just aren't appropriate anymore. So he says, we feel this kind of compelled movement, even in our social lives, even in our, in our moral codes. But then we of course also feel in just the pace of our lives. It just feels like the pace of our lives just keeps going faster and faster and faster. Now there's something that's really interesting with that, that I'm trying to explore now is that there also are these economists who are talking about this great stagnation that's come across the American economy that really the, from ni- from 1870 to 1970, there was huge amounts of economic and, and innovative change really um, a- across society. And really since the 1970s that we, the American economy has been in, in pretty consistent stagnation, which I also find really interesting mm. because you can think of from like 1870 to 1970 really was the heyday of mainline denominations. And, mm. um, and I think they thrived really quite well inside of uh inside of a, a growth economy but since the 1970s we really haven't had a growth economy and except in a few sectors and that's been in you know in, in digital technology and entertainment have, have grown um and it, it appears i mean this is an overstatement but the churches that have been able to kind of match that or or uh reflect that have also grown so you have a big meg- mega church movement and Basically, just like the economy, where you have a bunch of inequity of really rich people and then people who are finding their their incomes not growing, you find that in the church as well. You find, you know, since the 1980s, huge churches that are, um, you know, kind of reflect the economic inequality of the economy. And then you have just a bunch of churches that are 80 people, 90 people. And um, so there's a, a certain interesting dynamic that we keep pushing for more and more and growth and growth and growth. And part of that push is this deep sense that we're not growing, that that growth isn't there. Or we do look at Silicon Valley and think, well, that's that's how you grow. Like that that's that's what we need to be. That's what we need to kind of follow. And uh, as you know, I'm very, very skeptical of that <laughs> as well. Um, so th- this acceleration is just this internal push that we feel in the structures of our of our institutions to grow, to advance, to do more with less. Um, but it also then frames how we think of a good life um, or uh, right. a, a good institution. So it's not just structural, it's also agency. So we start to feel like the best life is the busiest life, even mm-hmm. though we know it's potentially dangerous. You know, like when anyone asks me, how are you doing? I always say, well, I'm good, I'm busy. I'm, I'm really busy. And that communicates two things. You know, at, at one level, it communicates I'm living a good life. Like, you know, I'm in demand. 
I'm on a podcast right now. I mean, I, you know, I couldn't schedule anything else. Someone wants to talk to me. So it signals that I'm living well, but it also kind of signals, I always say it with a little bit of a sigh because I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm, you know, I, I also am worried that the busyness um, and the desire to reach more and more and do more and more and have more and more connections and uh, that, that at some point will turn on me. Um, And yeah, so I think when it comes to congregational life, this accelerating mode are just people feel it. They feel like the pace of their lives just keeps accelerating. Um, But the structural realities I think congregations can feel um, because we don't really have any other measure of what, what leads any institution in the West to be stable. The only, the only measure we have that stabilizes an institution is growth that only only growing institutions are stable institutions, whether it's a company, my gosh, right. whether it's a nation state, like every, every party runs on will grow the economy, at least in the West. Every, every Western political party will say we're going to grow the economy. And in other words, you only have a stable society. Um, I mean, it's interesting how much law and order on trying to make a stable society is also interconnected with we'll get more jobs, we'll, 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 uh, we'll up the we'll, – well, up the GDP. Well, we're good for the economy. Like those are all interconnected. Um, and it's, but it's insidious. And that's Rose's point is, um, I mean, I tell pastors all the time, the way that this works, he calls it dynamic stabilization. So you stabilize in this dynamic way of continuing to grow. And if you grow at 30%, if you have a company that grows 30% this year, um, you know, 2023 has been a 30% growth. When you start to forecast for 2024, you cannot, it is, it is absolutely absurd to say, well, we grew 30% this year. Let's just go for a 5% growth in, in 2024. And then after two years, we'll be, we'll be up 25%. So, you know, let's, let's just spend this year, everyone, and let's, let's downshift. Let's just grow at 5 No, if you grew at 30% this year, you need to grow at 31% next year. And then mm-hmm. you're going to need to grow at 32% the next year. You're just going to continue to have to do this. And so – and I think this happens in churches. You know, I think I think pastors, 100%. yeah, and others feel that way. Like if we get growth this year, then you have to serve the slave master of the continued growth. Like it, it never really ends in, in that dynamic. And so then it just pushes people into burnout all the time. Like the only way off the train is burnout, which is why we see these quote unquote, and you know, those on YouTube can see me put the quote marks up. Those who are listening can't, but the the successful (laughs) churches quote, the successful churches, the big churches, the churches of, of dynamic growth. Um, well, eventually what happens is the pastor essentially runs the church into a brick wall. You know, they, they have a moral failure or it's exposed all these spiritual abuses that have happened and the strong arming of people because they have felt like they have to continue to grow. And you're going to, I'm going to have to have a board I have to answer to. No, 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 That That will slow down the growth. I mean, I took this church from 10 people in my living room to 10,000 people. And now we have to continue to grow all this stuff. Um, yeah, the only way out of this is, uh, you know, either to have to strong arm and run over anyone who stands in your way or, you know, have a moral failure and get out and, and get out of it, you know, or, um, you know, do a bunch of illegal stuff and, and, and be exposed. I mean, so burnout comes in some pretty devastating ways that way. Yeah. Okay. So many things I want to, so many threads. <laughs> Shane and I are both like, I can see Shane in space. Um, so I, I, 
a whole podcast could be unfolded, a whole series even about the economic imagination mm-hmm. around what's happening today and sort of a lack of creativity and stagnation around um, our economic models. And I'm just going to put a pin in that because I really do feel like that would take us down a hole. Yeah. But as an organization that pri- provides financial services and is trying to help strengthen the church's mission, I mean, we're like everywhere we look, trying to have conversations about a new um, imagination for economic models for the church, for our neighborhoods, you know, all of that. So I'm just going to put a pin in that one. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to come back to, uh, you know, you've painted this picture and we're trying to sort of face reality in this uh, season and name reality and this notion of an accelerated age and what that does to a congregation, what that does to a leader, um, it is, as, as you said, devastating, and yet it's very real. I mean, you've painted the picture not just in technology, which is often how we talk about it, but you know, even in our moral way of showing up, in our, in our, um, I mean, just you named a bunch, and I won't go back through it, but I, I am curious about the role of a leader in the midst mm. of this, and what. What does leadership look like for pastors in this that isn't completely depleting or participating in and encouraging that that crazy cycle? Yeah, yeah. so I think it's a huge leadership task, but it's one that my hunch is when I'm going to say this, some people are going to throw their iPhones across across the room. Like it, it, it will make some people sick to their stomach. And there's certain moral assertions there too. I think a huge piece inside of this, um, well, there's two dynamics to it. One is to say, we feel it, it's crazy making how much the acceleration goes. Yeah. And once you get on the roller coaster, you never can get off of it. I mean, that's, that's part of the issue. So, I mean, the, the deep temptation is to say, what we need to do is slow down. And we do need to slow down, no, no doubt about it. But this is so deeply insidious that just slowing down won't be a, be enough. That there has to be actually a different way of relating to one another, um, a different way of even relating to the world. Um, so it, it is a sense of kind of in leadership, what kind of actions, what kind of form of action really does the transformational work that we we wanted to. And so one way to think about this that I find really quite fascinating is Rose is building off this earlier uh, Jewish social theorist named uh, Eric Fromm. And Fromm makes this argument. I mean, this is part of a Protestant issue. You know, just being Protestant, we have to kind of face Mm -hmm. this, is that one of the beautiful things that the Protestant Reformation does is it equalizes action. You know, so in a medieval society, there are very different forms of action. You basically have three different classes that formed action. You had a, you know people who worked labor. You had people who killed the knights um, who protected the realm, and then you had people who prayed. And the people who prayed, um, the monks and the in the abbots, they held an incredible amount of of esteem. And so there was a real society that was divided on these forms of, hmm. of action. And one of the things the Protestant Reformation does, particularly through Calvin and Luther, is equalize all forms of action. So it's incredibly profound to a society when Luther says. Leading a mass or changing a baby's diaper, it's the same before God. They all are done before God. I mean, this is a little bit, this is a little simplistic, but this is the priesthood of all believers that all of our actions are done before God. So there's a sense of this equalizing action. But as the centuries unfold 
And the, the modern project linked with both the Enlightenment and then industrialization, um, as soon as it gets further and further away from, from God and this living God, it happily inherits that all action is equal. Um, and it, there's no other evaluative measure really in this than the expenditure of energy. So the best action is the one that expends the most mm. energy. And that seems to be our only kind of moral code on action. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I don't know if this is, you all are probably much better people than I am. But when I fight with my wife, like, I don't know, when you fight with your partners, it's probably mm -hmm. different. You're much more you know, noble. But when we fight, we always fight. What, what ends up becoming, the, like the dishwasher needs to be unloaded and we're both exhausted and one of us needs to do it, it becomes a, a debate on who's expended the most energy today and therefore mm. has to unload the dishwasher. And so in some sense, the best action is whoever's expended the most energy, which is why I tell people when they ask me how I'm doing that I'm busy. I'm trying to tell you I'm expending a lot of energy and see that has, that has value. Um, so inside the expenditure of energy as, as having the only value you can see how that would become what's the best leader then the best leader is the one who can get this group of people to expend the most energy the best leader is to see the uh the founder of the silicon valley company who doesn't sleep and sleeps under under his desk and you know right. can't even go home to change his clothes mm -hmm. like that becomes ennobilized as the best form form of action and yet it will absolutely burn us out so is there another kind of form of action other than the expenditure of energy that, that we need to, to move into? And I do think there is, and this is where I think people will get annoyed, is that there is a form of action that leans into actually waiting together and how we wait with each other. And part of us, we just hate that because we've been told that waiting is wasting. You know, mm -hmm. if you're, if you're waiting, you're wasting. And, um, and in many ways, the whole late capitalist uh, kind of consumer society, uh, one of the ways Zygmunt Bauman talks about it is it, it drives to take the waiting out of wanting, you know, so your Amazon droid is coming soon. You know, like if you can, if you can take all the waiting out of, of wanting, that seems to be a good, but I do think at the core of the of the biblical message at the core of the life of the church is to be a community that waits, that waits on God, that waits wow. with one another. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do forget that the first command that's, that forms the church, we love Acts, we love Acts too. Like we just love that story so much, um, <laughs> especially inside decline narratives. And we particularly love the line and thousands were added to their number. You right. know, like that's like, Ooh, that's luscious. So that, that makes my, you know, my mouth water. That's what we're hoping in our church. Thousands will be added to our numbers, but we forget that like Luke acts the end of Luke and the beginning of acts. The first command is to the men on the road to Aramaeus to go back to Jerusalem and to wait. Jesus' first command of the church that yeah. gathers them is to go to, to, to Jerusalem and yeah. wait. And I wonder if that's part of the leadership drive is how do we bring people together to wait together? But it can't be the kind of waiting that's waiting for a delayed flight. Like that's just absolute yeah. torture. <laughs> it's got to be a kind of waiting where we share in each other's stories, where we laugh together, where we cry together. And at its most important, where we wait in anticipation of God's action and how we're going to discern that. You can imagine in Jerusalem as these men and women wait, they're 
telling stories. And they probably over and over again say it to the men who return um, from the road to Aramaeus and say, okay, tell us the story again. Uh, how do we make sense of this? And so in some sense, I think that's what the leadership, the leadership uh, responsibility is, is to gather the community and retell these stories and hear these stories and, and live life together and laugh together and eat together, but always with this anticipation that God is going to act, that God is going to move, that God is going to lead us. Um, and instead, we kind of feel like, well, if you're going down, you know, go go down fighting, go down swinging, expend the most that you can. Yeah, go down fast. Why not go down fast? Which is, a, you know, another, you know, kind of Silicon Valley based thing. Like, you know, we just think of all the streaming services. What's I mean, many of them, they know there's no economic model to make money. They're just trying to hold on long enough that everyone else will, their, their burn rate will go away and they'll have to close. You know, like that's, that's Netflix model is, you know, eventually, eventually Disney plus won't have, won't be able to make enough money. And then, you know, um, which, yeah, that's just, that's a, I don't know. I, I'm not, I'm not for that. The context <laughs> Um, yeah, I have to say, I'm really glad earlier I was getting really wound up and like frustrated and you're talking about acceleration. I'm like, but oh my gosh, in the, in the church, we have all these tools and resources to like be still and like to practice Sabbath. And this is a moment the world needs churches to like help us know how to live in an accelerated age. But then you just brought this richness of actually, we need to wait together. We need leaders that can help us wait together. And in that waiting, it's an anticipated waiting. It's not inaction. And so I just mm-hmm. love where you're where you're going. And it reminds me, we started this um, series with Margaret Wheatley, who talks about that, like being in a circle together and hearing each other's stories and that weeping, crying, sharing. So I'm loving that. But you keep mentioning Silicon Valley and what technology and Netflix. And so you have written a book, Church After Innovation. And as somebody, I mean, you know me and um, the work of Rita Good, like we've been working on innovating and helping churches innovate for a long time. And you inherently come at this where maybe... Maybe that's not the answer. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your yeah. book, The Church yeah. After Innovation. Yeah, it's it's a bit embarrassing. It is it, the book is a bit of old man get off my lawn. You know what I mean? Like uh, everyone's talking about innovation, so I'm like, I, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be the, the the contrarian here. So yeah, I mean, and some people have set me up as like the Darth Vader of innovation. You know, and I, I don't <laughs> think that that's that's actually not how I would want to position myself. I'm not against innovation in any way, but I am fascinated with inside of all, I mean, the, the real privilege I have to be around multiple Protestant institutions and with pastors. I mean, this word was everywhere. It's, it, it is everywhere. It has been everywhere. And I, I just am interested in like, why, why is this captured our imagination so much? And so it, it is, uh, the book really is a kind of, um, if you will, a, a kind of, exploration of, of that idea. Where does this really come from? And, and I did have this kind of suspicion that no one is really thinking about how much innovation, especially outside the church is connected to a certain form of capitalism. And, mm-hmm. um, are we okay with that? I mean, I, I, I'm not somebody who's against capitalism in any way. Um, but we should be aware of where this kind of comes from. And 
I, I use this a, a analogy in the book of, you know, if it is, is based in capitalism, and again, keeping with our theme of this podcast, that in some ways Protestantism is responsible for capitalism, if, if Max Weber is correct, it is fascinating that a certain way of practicing belief creates a certain way of working, you know, that, mm. that, that spills out into a way of working. So for, especially for these Dutch Calvinists to really be concerned about what it means to be saved or elect creates a certain form. And that same kind of, um, kind of way of thinking about our action being, um, e- being equalized now, like, you know, selling buttons is a faithful way of acting for God, but you have to do it in a certain way and you have to do it with hard work and you have to do it in a way that doesn't, you know, you don't, you don't have a private jet, not that you could do that in the 17th century, but you know, that, uh, but you, you reinvest the capital in the system. I mean, so that this is a Faber's point that it, it creates this. So this whole form of belief spills out into way of, of working. And, and I try to point out like no one in the medieval the medieval world would have thought like to say to someone, like if I were to say to you, Shannon, like Shannon, one of the things I really noticed about you is you are a hard worker. You would take that as like, Oh, thank you. Like that's really a compliment. (laughs) First of all, no one would say that to anyone in the medieval period, like you're a hard worker. And if they did, they would be like, what does that mean? Like, you know, I I don't know if that's a good thing to be a hard worker. I mean, there, there was no sense of that having an inherent value in and of itself. And yet, Every, ever every upwardly mobile parent just wants their kid to learn to work hard. You know, like that's the justification on why you drive your kid to every state for every, you know, softball tournament or soccer tournament or spending all this money on uh, piano lessons. Uh, you hope maybe they'll be able to cash that in to have a successful career. But at the end, you're like, I just hope they learn to work hard. That's really what matters. <laughs> and that comes from a whole kind of logic of, of thought, but it also comes from another compliment that just people in the medieval period would have never had. And I could definitely say this is true to you, Shannon, knowing you well. I mean, like I could say, Shannon, you are a really creative person and you would take that as an absolute compliment. And yet, you know, if you said that to a theologian in the 12th century said, you know, I just want to watching you across the Latin quarter in, in Paris, I just want to say you are a very creative theologian. They would be absolutely offended because what you would mean is mm-hmm. you're a heretic. Like you are <laughs> doing say. creative things with the tradition. This is not a compliment. And so it's only in a certain epoch of time that even creativity could be assumed to be an individual exercise and that it could be fundamentally a good thing, which starts to show us these different changes. Mm -hmm. So what I'm fascinated about is how this dynamic of innovation and being an innovator or an entrepreneur, which is a mainly a kind of, if you will, secular um, business strategy, how that is reversed flow. And now those practices, those frameworks have filtered back into the church. And now we look at pastors and be like, if you're going to be a good pastor, you have to be creative. You have to be innovative. Um, and you have to be an entrepreneur. You're not, you're not going to make it. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily wanting to say that that backwash is polluted water and is going to, you know, I'll give us an infection and uh, we're going to die. I'm not necessarily saying that, but I am saying like, we, we should test this water. Like we should look at this water and see if this is this is all good. And one of the elements in the book testing the water that I'm concerned about is that 
late form, late you know, neoliberal capitalism has a certain dynamic of the self, of what it thinks a self needs to do, of uh, the way work tries to form a certain kind of self. And I do mm -hmm. find that potentially problematic. And it becomes this performative self that you have to perform yourself, that you, that you become your own project of creativity and work is a way that you express that. And um, I worry about that because I, I do think it, well, it does the, it, it does the opposite of what Martin Luther wants us to kind of live. I, he would never say a sanctified life, but live a, a kind of justified life. Um, or it fits exactly in what he thinks sin is, which is to be turned in on the self. Um, and I think that to me, this is the real danger that one of the things that happens after the 1980s is that companies no longer give protections to workers, but they give space for workers to be their creative individual selves. And there is a certain perspective that every worker, even if you're just making copies at a law firm, that you're doing it as your own project, as your own creativity, as your, as your own way of being a unique self. I think that has formative problems um, to it. Mm -hmm. And and Silicon Valley really does lift that up in in a, in a certain way. That kind of that kind of perspective. I, I'm seeing the threads and the argument that you're making are against you know innovation. And I, now I'm using air quotes and and entrepreneurship yeah. as if you follow this argument around the accelerated age and um, and the the increased the value placed on increased energy and that innovation mm -hmm. entrepreneurship just becomes one more way of talking about and thinking about yes. how we're valuing like you know that sort of growth expansion innovation entrepreneur like all that gets thrown into this cycle that can be so um harmful to the soul if you will of the individual but also the collective experience of what it means to be the community of faith and living into god's uh, call and uh, best intention for our lives together and for the world right okay so so i'm i'm with you there and and how even innovation and entrepreneurship becomes even an accelerated turning in on self and a valuing of self that you've talked about yes. also in terms of the secular age and the secular mysticism or whatever that you've referred to. Okay. So I'm with you there. And <laughs> I'm going to go back to what you said at the beginning around the, the, the problem that we think is the problem and isn't the, really the problem. And that is less about a scarcity of resources and more about a lack of imagination and that we are stuck. And it, it's that gridlock of imagination that Friedman talks about. And that, um, and so I almost feel like it's, this is a, this is both a cultural and a language limitation or constraint, because if we can ignite imagination and, and that to me is about the Holy Spirit, right? Mm -hmm. If we can pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is doing, then we will be ignited within and together collectively, not about self, but collectively, mm -hmm. even though I would say God does, I mean, we could have a whole conversation about self and the value of mm -hmm. self that is part of this Imago day, right? That we are, you know, okay. So, but we're not, I'm not going to go down that right now, but, but just to say that, um, and I, I guess I want to put this out there because igniting imagination is not just the name of our podcast, but it's our theory of change, if you will. I mean, we're saying that if we can help ignite the imagination of 
leaders today of, of folks who are sitting in pews, but also particularly, you know, leading congregations and ministries and such, that that igniting of imagination, that paying attention to the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. will lead to new ways of being at the church, right? Which is innovation by definition, like new ways of that add value, right? So I'm not talking about Silicon mm-hmm. Valley innovation, but but what it means to do a new thing. So I'm saying that because we have mm-hmm. kind, kind of, we're going to sort of all in. We put our, our chips yes, into this degree of change, right? And, I know, um, yeah. And, yeah. And, and so I guess I want to play with the wording maybe. And mm-hmm. is there a, if we could help the church think about innovation, not Silicon Valley, but in terms of paying attention to the Holy Spirit, igniting imagination, mm-hmm. you know, what mm-hmm. would that be? What does that look like? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and this is why I said, like, it, it does feel like I become old man, get off my lawn because then all of a sudden like, I, it, this has happened where people like stop saying innovation around me or they're like, <laughs> and then they look at me like, I can't say that word. Like it's not a swear word to me. And, and I think there's still a, a lot of value in it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess this, it becomes a big question for then how do we discern the very action of God within a community, you know, and, and I think there is a kind of certain kind of American sensibility that says, maybe doesn't explicitly say this, but there's a certain way in late form capitalism that we all become kind of prosperity gospel people in some ways, you know what I mean? Like we, none of us escape that. And so we, yes, we start to assume that where the Holy spirit is, is where we do see, growth and resources and relevance, you know, like, and those are the stories we tell. And then we try to build practices around those. We think innovation is, is kind of around that. And I do, I do function out of a deeper kind of existentialist, you know, uh, kind of frameworks and from, from Luther's theology of the cross, which does say this really bold statement that where God is found is at places of death, working life out of death. Mm-hmm. And that, there could absolutely be ways of thinking about the practices of innovation that get there, but there also are ways that even our innovative practices, even our liturgies, I mean, really even our, all of our religious kind of cultic forms have to come under that kind of judgment, you know, and, and then they can be resurrected in, in, in certain ways. You know, I, I do think there's a certain dynamic where even Paul thinks this for his own identity. Like I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. There's a mm-hmm. sense that that all has to be, crucified and then it's given back to you and i i don't know how to articulate it yet but i do think there's a way for folks like you all who are working innovative processes to recognize the dialectical nature like in some ways innovation has to come under judgment and then it can be given back to us in a, mm. in a different way oh, yeah. but i am pretty committed and a little bit worried about that in, if we like we all want to say, like, where is God? What is God doing? And, mm. and this is probably will turn off some of your listeners too. I think that we have to remember, like, in these traditions, to ask the question, "Where is God?" is a deeply dangerous question. Mm. Um, that to ask the question, "Where is God?" is to open ourselves up to judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, and both Calvin and Luther said this: that God first kills before God makes alive. Now that is so against our sensibilities, you know. Like that feels really you know, too late medieval for us. But the point is, is that there is an utterly beautiful, graceful, ministerial, 
disposition of God's own nature, that God comes to what is broken and what is lost, Mm -hmm. and God brings life out of it. And that the human agent's job is to confess, not to necessarily create, but to confess and to put ourselves in a stance of reception to receive God's gifts. And I do think there's a, a kind of innovative process, if you will, that could happen, maybe innovation with a lowercase i, that helps people get into a, a kind of passive stance of, of waiting for waiting. God's gifts, you know. Yeah, like exactly, you know, Advent. And, and, and you know, we think about that, that what it means to, to be put in that. And there absolutely people have to be helped to do that. But it mm-hmm. is a, a kind of frame that says, okay, the kind of spaces we need to create and anticipate are those where we make confessions and mm-hmm. and surrender to something outside of us. Where I just, mm-hmm. I do feel like well, with a lot of pastors that the words are like, you have some something creative in you or in your in, in yourself. You can find it. If we if we go through a process, you'll find that inner unique singular thing. Mm-hmm. Instead, what would it mean to be in a process together where we confess that we are waiting on something from outside of us to mm-hmm. save us? How do we form a community that can can wait on 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 this? And so I'm really enamored lately with mm-hmm. um, Psalm 46, and we all love. <laughs> That part of Psalm 46 where it says, be still and know I am God. Uh-huh. I'm not a Hebrew expert, but I've been told that one of, one of the ways to render the Hebrew more directly is put down your hands and know that I am God. Mm-hmm. Now that seems to me utterly profound. Right. Put down your hands and know I'm God. Stop fighting me mm-hmm. um, and also stop mm-hmm. doing a bunch of mm-hmm. stuff. Just, it, just, mm-hmm. just put down your hands and know I'm God. Mm-hmm. So if our innovative processes are about helping congregations put down their hands mm-hmm. and know mm-hmm. that God is God, that is yeah. really quite beautiful. Yeah. If our innovative process, which I think happens in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. is we're trying to innovate to get our hands going faster, keep punching, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. some of us are going to burn out and die, but a few mm-hmm. of us are going to become singular lords <laughs> of the economy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I'm worried about yeah. that, but we have to like directly kind of push back against mm-hmm. those narratives because they're in them. I mean, we, we have so many Steve Jobs biopics that's like, you know, in a garage with one crazy engineer mm-hmm. and now the biggest company in the world, your church could be that singularly distinct too, <laughs> if you could just find your creative idea. Mm-hmm. And that's its own kind of spirituality and, and, and religion that, you know, that you have it in you, if you could just be brave enough to, to access yeah. your, your, yeah, singular creativity. What I love you you talked about, like where God is, is where there's pain. And it makes me think about grief and loss. And we've talked to Pauline Boss in this season. And like, actually grief slows us down, right? When we, when, and, and I wonder if it's one of the, the ways that leaders can help us move out of this acceleration and slow us down is to like recognize what's being lost to name the things that we can grieve and to help us do the work of grief and then to, and to trust, uh, to actually trust that newness will come, that it's not mm. innovation for the sake of innovation, but like when we get still, we name grief, we sit together and we wait to hear what, how do we respond then? Because the, the next part of that verse in Psalm um, 46 is, you know, be still and know that I'm God. And then, 
you know, yeah. and that was, a. I mean, that, I tell you the first six months I was in the UK when I didn't know a soul, that was my <laughs> first every day. It was like the Lord just stopped mm. me at then, you know, it was yeah. like, couldn't read any further. Be still know that I'm gone. And then, so how do we, I don't know. That makes me wonder. And I know I'm going to ask a question and I know we're taking a lot of time today, but I mean, you are working with a lot of pastors to like do some new things as well. Right. Like to say, how do we, I mean, I guess I'm wondering what are you seeing as pastors embrace, like what you're talking about in terms of acceleration and the challenge of innovation, but then try to lead their congregations. What, what, what are you seeing? What are you learning as they do that? And where are you hopeful? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so one of the, my big concerns is, um, and I think one of the ways you could just, if you wanted to like quickly, I don't know, dismiss or even summarize my work, you could probably just say, well, this has been six volumes and a popular book that's just justifying his wife's ministry, you know, cause my wife's a PCUSA pastor of a, you know, 60 person church and um, no one who visited it would ever think, my gosh, this is the future of Protestantism or, you know, like this, this is a shining example of how you save the mainline church in any way. But I've had a front row seat to watch, you know, over 15 years, her walk with people, and as they die, as they get diagnosed with cancer um, and, you know, really difficult situations of, you know, a 40-year-old mother who gets diagnosed with cancer mm-hmm. and um, has a four-year-old daughter. And a lot of the discourse I hear essentially undercuts that practice and says, you have to become an innovator and you have to save your church and, you know, you have to do a kind of small businessy kind of thing that... and. And maybe that's all a way to to serve and minister to the community, but I just don't want the pastoral practice to be lost of the utter beauty of walking with people in life and death Mm. and joy and sorrow. I mean, there's no other kind of position in our society that will prepare you to die, you know, that will really prepare you to think of your life as preparing to, to die, that will face the tragedy of that and be with you in that. So there's grief at just this deep human level. And so a lot of my work with pastors is trying to lift up those moments. And what sometimes you'll hear pastors be like, oh, I, they all have these moments, but yet their church is struggling and they haven't seen any growth in a decade. And they're like, well, I'm failing. And yet then you hear these stories of like mm-hmm. these moments, these events of, of something incredibly profound happening. And I want to look at those moments and first of all, proclaim that God is moving in those moments. There's the the movement of cross to resurrection. And then I do want them to think about those as the formative moments of their identity. You know, that they, yeah, that a lot of it is slogging along with these people. You know, it is, you know, you do a Bible study every Wednesday night and it pretty much for the most part is blah. But then one week, Hmm. All of a sudden, the guy who's been the, the headache of the whole time starts telling you a story about the grief, to talk about grief, the grief of losing his mother, and something happens, something connects you, you, you it becomes an event of encounter. Hmm. And so a lot of my work is trying to point to those those experiences and saying, what, well, those need to form us. And that's what, what pastoral ministry is. It is these experiences of deep 
deep forms of connection um, that that occur that then hopefully form our identities. Um, so I think there are processes to that, uh, but there also are not allowing the process to become the thing. You know that uh, this is the the Rosa thing again. That's uh, part of his theory that's so important is that these most fundamentally deep experiences of resonance that we have that make us feel alive again, they're uncontrollable. You mm-hmm. can't control them. And if you try to control them, you lose them. Um, you smother them. Uh, our most beautiful experiences that transform us are relationships that are uncontrollable in some way. You know, a conversation with a friend even is uncontrollable. If you try yeah. to control it, you do violence to it. And yet I worry, this is what the part I really worry about the innovation entrepreneurship is it becomes a slick, creative way to control. I, I want us to avoid that as a, as a fundamental practice. And yet this is part of the modern project. We're all kind of told control manage, fix. That's your job. And what you should do every day you wake up, control, manage, fix, control, manage, fix. And and that's what you do if you're an upwardly mobile person. And I don't think pastoral practice can thrive as control, manage, fix. Maybe what are the questions, this is the way I'll say it, that leaders ought to be asking, pastors ought to be asking right now, you know, not control, manage, fix, you know, solutions, answers, fix, but what are the questions that mm-hmm. pastors, but also yeah. the church ought to be asking and exploring right now? This will seem really pietistic, but I think the question that should frame us is where is Jesus Christ? Where is Jesus Christ moving in this mm-hmm. community? Mm-hmm. Where is it that we think as a kind of form of imagination that people encounter the living mm-hmm. uh, Jesus mm-hmm. Christ? And mm-hmm. then I think it is connected to that, or I think we'll be led into is like, where are the experiences of loss and death here? And how are those named in a way that doesn't kind of become a blunt instrument, but that are really an invitation to share? And then how do you prepare a community as you ask, where is Jesus Christ? And maybe you have, you, you, you have a commitment where Jesus Christ is, is where there's death and loss. Jesus Christ is found bringing life out of death. Well, then the kind of practices and the kind of visions we need are to be people who'd go to where there's brokenness and Mm -hmm. death and Mm -hmm. are present. And so there is a kind of sacramental Mm -hmm. overtone that I'm trying to get us to say that when human beings really share at this deep level, there's a transformation. That's beautiful. Um, And and actually a great way to transition to the end of our time together, because I think what you've done in those words and those questions is you've framed for us, you are a person, and this is the reason why we wanted to have you in this series, you're a person who reads the culture, who pays attention and helps us see things in new ways. And and in this uh, season that we're naming uh, Facing Reality, Claiming Leadership, or something close to that, <laughs> um, th- that um, we're wanting to pay attention to what's happening in the world. And what you've done is frame for us, um, even in the midst of all these very real realities that we've named, um, you've said, where is Jesus? Like, let's pay attention to that. That's a that's a framework for naming our reality because Jesus is in the pain and the loss and the hurt and the death. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is also in the light and the hope and the goodness. And so, so I love that and, and appreciate your, your framing of that. Okay. So here's our final question that we're asking all our guests this season. And it is, 
Okay, so considering the realities of the world, many of which we've named, and the leadership to which you have been called, what do you want to be remembered for? Mm. Mm. I want to be remembered for being the uh, most innovative, creative guy who ever existed. <laughs> I want to be remembered for being existing in every performative contradiction possible. Yeah. Um, no, it's a great question. I, I mean, it's embarrassing to think of what you could be uh, remembered for, but I hope I, I, I think at, at the core, what I think I'm about that I then hope I'm remembered for is rem- is, is first and foremost, really deeply honoring pastoral practice is that, that there is something utterly profound about pastoral practice. And we're in a moment where pastoral practice feels like it is pointless, meaningless, you know, like all that stuff is, um, you feel that you feel like every other form of human action is more powerful, you know, pastor, I should have been a lawyer, or I should have been a Silicon Valley innovator, or, um, you know, I, I should be a politician instead, or we have a lot, like a lot of young people going to seminary who just want to be activists instead of, of pastors. And I want to claim that pastoral practice is the most powerful form of human action there is. It looks weak, very much like Paul in, in Second Corinthians. It looks utterly foolish. I mean, it is a foolish form of action that you would mm. enter grief, to use your words. Uh, Shannon, that most of us, it makes a lot of sense, especially in this accelerated age, to run from grief instead of walking into grief. And the pastor is kind of like that first responder who goes into the storm instead of, you know, goes into the fire instead of away from the fire. And I want to remind us that that is utterly profound and that pastoral practice may be the most powerful human action we have, though it looks quite weak and it must always look weak. Because it is the only form of human action that shares in death and participates in life coming out of death. Political action, the law, none of that really does that. You know, a great business leader doesn't do that. But a pastor who sits with you when you've lost a child or who gathers in a basement and tries to talk about what it means to pray and and creates a space for people to share their stories of God's presence and absence that becomes profoundly transformational. So I'd like to be remembered for that and for for reminding us that God in God's own self is a minister, that the God we know is a God who ministers Mm. to us. Whoever this God is, this is the God who frees Israel from Egypt and raises Jesus from the dead. This is a God who enters the world, not, you know, to just simply be a a phenomenon, but to minister, to bring salvation, to, Mm. to, to, to save us, to, to minister to us. So at that core, what I hope I'm remembered for is reminding pastors that God is God mm-hmm. and, um, and that in the practice of ministry, you come up against the presence of God. Well, you are stirring the hearts and imaginations of so many leaders today. And I love that you are doing it from a place of saying you matter. And um, that's, that's a beautiful gift. So Andy, thank you for being with us today. Uh, thanks for having me. Igniting Imagination is a production of the Learning and Innovation Team at Wesleyan Impact Partners with excellent editing support from Truthwork Media. Follow us on social media at Wesleyan Impact Partners, visit our website at ignitingimagination.org, and share episodes with friends and colleagues. Our hope is that these conversations can spark imagination in your context. I'm Blair Thompson. On behalf of all of us at Wesleyan Impact Partners, thanks for listening.
actually it's when we really get good at grief. Like I'm thinking we've talked to. Sorry, there's some kid in the hallway who was just screamed. So, sorry, I'm in a hotel. <laughs> I was like, What's sorry, I'm torturing children in the other room. Bird. I was like, is there a bird that just is attacking something? Anyway, Shannon- you, know, you know, you know the right, you know the movie Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah, that's where. Yeah. <laughs> um, 